Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. U.S. Representative David Cicilline has spent nearly half of his life in politics, first as a state rep, then as mayor of Providence, and on to Congress. But he's leaving all of that behind this week to run the state's largest philanthropic organization, the Rhode Island Foundation. What's on his mind as he starts this new chapter? Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Congressman David Cicilline, and we are here at his house in Providence. Thank you for meeting us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. May 31st is your final day in Congress, and after that, you'll become president and CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation. Tell us what's going through your mind as you conclude your congressional career. First and foremost, deep, deep gratitude. I have loved every day that I've served in the Congress of the United States. Serving and representing Rhode Island has been the greatest honor of my life. And I worked hard every single day to deliver real results to my state. And I hope people see my service in that light. And I'll miss a lot about the job, particularly my wonderful colleagues that I've had the privilege of working with over the last 12 years and the colleagues in our delegation, Senator Reed, Senator Whitehouse, Congressman Langevin, and Congressman Magaziner. But I'm also really, really excited about my new role at the Rhode Island Foundation. Uh, the Rhode Island Foundation is one of America's oldest and largest community foundations and has just an extraordinary impact in Rhode Island and on the lives of Rhode Islanders. And I see you doing your homework here. Tell us what's on your dining room table. Yes. Um, at night, uh, for the last month or so, I have been studying um, community foundations around the country, the largest community foundations, to kind of learn how they're organized, uh, how they operate, what their priorities are, reading a number of books about community foundation leadership, just to kind of learn as much as I can uh, about the organization I'm about to lead and about similar organizations around the country. I've also been doing Zooms with um, presidents and CEOs of other community foundations and uh, also been in contact with some friends who are presidents and CEOs of large national foundations uh, like Rockefeller and Ford to get guidance and and mentorship. So uh, I'm just trying to prepare as I would in any 
I think as most people would in taking on a new role, like kind of get smart fast. So we're speaking on Tuesday after President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy have reached an agreement on a deal to suspend the debt ceiling for two years. I hate to bring it up, but shouldn't you be in D.C.? I'm leaving tonight uh, to get back to D.C. for the vote. And I expect that debt ceiling vote will be my last vote in Congress. And how are you going to vote and why? I'm leaning toward a yes, although I have not carefully studied the full parameters of the deal. I'll do that uh, in the rest of today and tomorrow before the vote. You know, my general impression is it's not, it doesn't have everything we wanted, but the president protected a lot of important priorities, Medicare, Medicaid, debt relief for students, the investments in the Inflation Reduction Act. So a lot of important victories. Um, there are some things that obviously are not terrific, but it's a compromise and we uh, we cannot allow the government to default on its obligations. So um, I'm leaning that way. I, I have to do a kind of more careful review. But how do we get here? You know, one of your, the Democrats running for your seat, Aaron Regenberg, just blasted the deal saying it was a profound mistake to give in to the GOP hostage taking, he called it. What do you say to that? Look, I, you know, I was always of the view that the president had the authority under the Constitution, under the 14th Amendment to honor the obligations of the United States, the debts of the United States. I think it's pretty clear. Lawrence Tribe, a great constitutional scholar, says it's not even a close call. It's in the explicit language. I think it would have been better to at least acknowledge, look, we have the absolute right to invoke the 14th Amendment as the president. I'm not, I'm happy to have a negotiation and see if we can come to an agreement, but let make no mistake about it. I'm not going to let the country default. I think when the president sort of took that off the table or at least suggested he wasn't comfortable doing it. I think it did strengthen the hand of McCarthy some, but this is a negotiation. And I think when you think about the harm to Rhode Islanders and to working families, a default would mean higher mortgage payments, higher car payments, much higher unemployment, devastating impact on people's retirement, people not getting paid. I mean, it would have really maybe force us into a recession. So I do think, you know, unfortunately, this is a position we're in for a lot of reasons. I, at least my initial reading is the president negotiated hard and got the best he could. And we have to win the next election if we want to change that. We were interviewing uh, Commerce Secretary Raimondo, and I was asking her about uh, this idea of banning TikTok. And there's, you know, there's a bill in there that wouldn't name TikTok, but would essentially do that. And there's some First Amendment concerns with doing that. What do you think? It's an important question. I would say first, the conduct that people are concerned about with TikTok in terms of collecting, relentlessly collecting data on users is the same conduct that our large technology platforms are doing in this country. And so in the, for the same reason, I have been sounding the alarm about this relentless surveillance capitalism where they're just collecting everything from you. We ought to be concerned about it. And what's different, of course, with the Chinese Communist Party is their ability to extract that information from TikTok. They say they never have. There's some evidence to the contrary. So I think it's a real, it's a national security question. But I think the answer is to have a set of rules that apply to every platform that that uh, operates in the United States. Whether you're a Chinese company or an American company, we ought to have guardrails. We ought to have privacy protections. Users ought to be required to explicitly consent to the retrieval or extraction of that data. And there ought to be uh, requirements that you are responsible if you amplify or share content which is false or dangerous or leads to violence. And so there are a set of reforms that ought to be in place to create guardrails so that those concerns can be alleviated. But it ought to be across the board for anyone who operates in the United States, in my view. And so there's work to be done with AI. Now, I think it's really, you know, excited people about the dangers of 
these large technology platforms, and maybe it's going to cause people to finally take action to rein in big tech and to really hold them accountable for their misconduct. Now, I know you've talked about your reasons for leaving Congress, but you got to help me understand this. I mean, I, I've uh, known you over the years from back when you were a state representative. You love politics. I mean, you live and breathe it. And now you're leaving Congress voluntarily. Not everybody leaves voluntarily. What am I missing? You're right. It's funny. I got some wonderful phone calls from my colleagues when they heard the news. And, you know, they were always like, what's the real reason? You know, there's something happening. And, and I explained to them uh, that, you know, I have been in elective office for almost half my life, for 28 years. And have loved every role I've had as a state representative, as mayor, and as a member of Congress. And, you know, the Rhode Island Foundation is an extraordinary place because, as I said, it, it is involved in issues of health care and economic opportunity and education, all the issues that I have worked on for my whole life. But it's, it's at a community foundation where they have the opportunity or the ability to bring resources and to make investments to make real progress on these issues. And in Rhode Island, because it's such a trusted community organization and the largest funder of nonprofits in the state, it also has tremendous authority to convene, so to bring people together to issue reports, to develop work plans on some of the most vexing issues facing our state. So it was an opportunity to come home, to work for the state that I love, to actually see the impact of the work uh, that I'm doing and leading at the foundation, and contrasted with you know remaining in the House under Republican control, I think it's really going to be difficult to make real progress and have make a real difference in the lives of Rhode Islanders. That's always what motivated me to get into politics. I'm going to be able to do that just in a different place. And I think in, in many ways, in a more effective way at the foundation than I could in the House right now. I was wondering, too, in 2020, you, you tried to become assistant speaker, the number four position in the House Democratic leadership. Are you leaving in part because you were no longer able to move up the democratic hierarchy? My decision to leave was really motivated by the extraordinary opportunity that the Rhode Island Foundation presented. This is an organization that has done such incredible work in Rhode Island, and to have the opportunity to build upon what has been done there and take it to the next level, to have an even greater impact, to leverage all of the relationships I have around the country, to bring it to bear, to do even more work, to more positively impact Rhode Island, was just too great an opportunity to say no to. And for a Rhode Islander, a trip to Westerly can seem like foreign travel. So are you leaving in part because DC is so far away? Well, no, but I will tell you, I the one part I will not miss about being a member of Congress is the commute every week and the fundraising. So those are two things. Oh, that we, yeah, yeah. You I don't mean, enjoy that? I mean, you know, I think it's the worst part of the job, to be frank. It's something you have to do, but I won't miss call time. And, and you can contrast that with now people are going to be asking you for money. Yeah, although there's an important fundraising component of the Rhode Island Foundation to, to be sure that we continue to grow uh, the endowment and to, to be able to grow the work. So you're the second Rhode Island congressman to step down in two years following the departure of Jim Langevin. And you say you can get more done as head of the Rhode Island Foundation. So what does that tell me about Congress these days? I mean, is it just too hard to get anything done with the partisan gridlock? No, look, I'm really proud over the 12 years, particularly the years that I was, that we were in the majority. I got a lot done. And, but look, it's a tough place. There's obviously deep partisanship, but it is still an important place to serve. Every candidate who's running uh, for the first congressional district seat who's called me, I've said, it's a great job. You should, you know, it's a... It's a great honor to serve Rhode Island. It's important to have good representation in Congress. It's a lot harder than it was when you first stepped foot in Congress. Yeah, I mean, I will tell you, I was, 
amazed at how partisan Congress was, even when I arrived. You know, we come from a state, I served in the General Assembly. You know, Republicans and Democrats worked together. We passed Republican bills. I was surprised when I arrived in Washington how deeply divided it was. I was sort of naive in that respect. I did find lots of ways to work with Republican colleagues. I would find a Republican who cared deeply about the issue I was working on and just sort of got them to work with me on that one issue and didn't spend a lot of time talking about other things. But I think it's gotten considerably worse because the Republican MAGA ultra kind of Trump members of the conference now are just deeply loyal to a person and not really a set of principles or values. And it's kind of harder to, you know, convince them to support your legislation if it departs in any way from what they perceive Donald Trump wants. You talked about people giving you a call. Imagine your phone has been ringing off the hook. So far, 15 Democrats are running for your seat. And I know you won't endorse anyone, but what do you make of this tidal wave of ambition you're seeing? Well, I think it's great. Look, it's, it's, it gives voters a real choice. I think these candidates will have an opportunity to make their case and explain uh, how they will serve in Congress. And I think the more people run, the more people vote, it strengthens our democracy. So I think it's great. And, you know, one of the things that gives me special delight is this new class of uh, members of Congress that are just these incredibly talented young people, some that are 25 and 26 years old. And I think they're going to bring an energy and a perspective that is really valuable and um, will be will make Congress an even better and more effective place. You think it'll, this will be the first year that Rhode Island sends either a Democratic woman or a person of color to D.C. for the first time? Well, there are a lot of good candidates that fit that description. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, the voters of the first congressional district will decide that. And I have tremendous confidence in their ability to pick the right candidate. So since you're not going back to Congress, one more day, you can tell me who's been your favorite and least favorite member of Congress. I'm guessing your favorite's Matt Gates. <laughs> um, my two favorite members of Congress have been Rosa DeLauro and Jamie Raskin. Rosa, because she's been a mentor to me. We bonded from the first day. She's been an advisor and counselor. She's been with me in every leadership fight I've been in. She's just, I consider her like a sister. Jamie Raskin, one of the finest human beings I've ever met. Just an incredibly decent and brilliant and kind person and a huge defender of our democracy. Those are two of my favorite colleagues. Um, Least favorite? I would say... Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think she's been really disruptive, and I think she's not been helpful to even her own party. One other thing I don't get, why did you open a bar? I mean, you don't drink, right? And you've never owned a bar before, have you? I owned a restaurant many, many years ago as an Narragansett, yeah. All right. Well, tell me about... taught me a lesson. (laughs) No, um, you know, the truth is, I was walking by the spot at 200 Washington Street, used to be Birch. And it said for lease. And I always thought that space was so cool because it's little. And at the same time, a friend of mine was was working in Newport at a bar and a really creative mixologist actually studied in London. So he and I started to talk about the idea of opening this cocktail bar. Everyone I know tried to talk me out of it. I should have listened to them because it's a it's a lot of work. I did learn a lot in the process about you know, opening a small business, particularly a business that has alcohol, which has a whole another set of uh, regulations. Um, so it was it was a really good learning opportunity. We made mistakes in the opening, but it's now open and running and very successful. But um, there's no good reason I did it, I guess is the point. 
And it's named uh, Clementine. We're named after my great grandmother. And are you going to stick with it? With Clementine? Is that going to be a going concern? Um, I think the plan will ultimately be to sell it to my manager, who's actually the genius behind it, because I'm not really going to have the time to devote to it. And also, you know, when I was in Congress and I'd come home on the weekends, I would check it out on a Friday or Saturday night. But now I'm going to be living in Rhode Island. I want, don't want to feel the obligation to go there more often. I'm just not going to have the time with my new job. So that's the ultimate plan. So tell me more about your plans for your new job. What will you do differently or the same as Neil Steinberg, the outgoing head of the Rhode Island Foundation? Well, I mean, the first thing I'll do when I arrive is spend the first few months doing a lot of listening, you know, meeting with individual members of the staff, really kind of understanding what everyone is doing and do an assessment of kind of the current organization. The foundation has identified three strategic priorities, ensuring economic opportunity for all Rhode Islanders, making sure Rhode Islanders have access to quality, affordable health care, and improving the quality of public education. And we also do a number of other things to do with food insecurity and the arts. And so I think my expectation is that in the fall, we will go through a strategic planning process just to kind of see where we are. It's been 15 years. Neil has been there for 15 years, done a terrific job, but um, it's a good opportunity to kind of reflect on the organization, reflect on the priorities we've set uh, to kind of be sure that we have a work plan going forward. You know, a couple of the areas that I'm interested in kind of leaning into more, and obviously this will be, a, you know, with consultation with the board, but I think there's a significant amount of work to be done in the climate space, which is not specifically identified right now. There's a lot of federal investment that's coming into that space, and I want to be sure we maximize our opportunity to be part of that, and we are the ocean state. And so I think the other thing that interests me is, uh, and the foundation has begun to do some of this work about civics education and civic engagement, and, you know, I'm excited to do more in that, as well as expanding and deepening their work on diversity and inclusion and being certain that we're focusing on issues of equity in all our areas of work. So I have a lot of studying to do, a lot of, you know, assessments to do before I make a presentation to the board of any changes. But one of my goal is to really build upon the great work of my predecessor and to grow the foundation's impact and reach. After decades in politics, how do you leave your partisan hat at the door in this role? I mean, you won't You'll always be looked at as the Democratic former mayor, former congressman from Rhode Island. Yeah, I hope eventually when I am given the opportunity to be the president and CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation, people will also see a transition. And they will see me as the leader of the largest funder of nonprofits in our state, one of the oldest and largest community foundations in the country, and an organization that is explicitly nonpartisan. And so I recognize in the same way I did the best I could as a member of Congress fighting for the things I knew mattered to Rhode Island and beating back Republican ideas that I thought were harmful. I recognize that I'm in a new role and that I am required to leave all of those sort of partisan um, responsibilities aside. I have a new responsibility and that is to work with stakeholders and donors and grantees that range the political spectrum and to be explicitly nonpartisan. And I know for a lot of people, I have to prove that. I'm coming from a reputation or in a life of politics. And so that's a transition I understand. If I were interested in staying in politics, I would have stayed in Congress. But I recognize that I have to show early in the actions that I take and the way that I conduct myself that I understand the transition that I've made. Could you uh, give us your thoughts about taking on this new role and a new identity for Rhode Islanders. Yes, um, I consider this an opportunity to come back to Rhode Island to serve our entire state. And I just want to say to Rhode Islanders, I will bring the same energy and commitment and determination and 
hard work to, uh, to this job that I've given to, done in every job I've held and look forward to, to doing work that will make a real difference in the lives of Rhode Islanders all across our state. All right, Congressman Cicilline, or should I say Foundation President Cicilline, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. For more coverage of Cicilline's resignation from Congress, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor, follow the show, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.